morning, everybody. Welcome to Hope. My name is Scott Raines. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to echo what's already been said. Uh, we're so glad you're here. Uh, for some of you, this is part of your regular rhythm, your regular routine, showing up at Hope on the weekends to worship and praise God, to learn about God, to grow in your faith. For some of you, this might be your first time here uh, or first time in a long time or first time in a long time at, at any church. Whatever's been going on in your life lately, whatever's brought you to this place at this time, we just want you to know we've been praying for you. And we don't think it's an accident that you are here today. Every Tuesday morning at 8.30, the leadership team of this congregation prays for God's spirit to be stirring in your hearts all week long, wherever you are, in your homes, at your uh, place of employment, in your friendship circles, asking uh, God to be at work, causing you to want to be a part of building his kingdom, his church here on earth so that we can know and understand more and more about God's love for us all the time so that we might understand what this Holy Spirit is up to. We're in this message series focusing on the Holy Spirit, and we're going to get to the Holy Spirit today, but it's going to be kind of a long and winding road. So I just want to warn you up front, we'll end up at the Holy Spirit, but you might wonder somewhere along the way, what does this have to do with the Holy Spirit? Where I want us to begin is the biggest, longest book in the Bible, the book of Psalms. It's the song book for the people of Israel. It's where they would go to learn how do we worship God in spirit and in truth, which is what Eli talked to us about last week. Here's how Psalm 42 begins. As the deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, O God. I thirst for God, the living God. I wonder if you'd read that last line with me, the line that's highlighted on the screen. Read it out loud with me. I thirst for God, the living God. On a scale of dry to quenched, what's your thirst level? And of course, there are seasons to this. There are seasons in life. There's ebbs and flow to our life of faith. But make no mistake, we all go through dry seasons. In fact, when you start looking through the pages of Scripture, and you look at the men and women of faith whose lives and stories we, we see in the pages of Scripture, one of the things you see, they spend a lot of time in dry seasons. And one of the primary metaphors for living a life of faith is this metaphor, this image of the desert. When Moses is leading the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt into the promised land, they spend 40 years in the wilderness, 40 years in the desert. And, and that number 40 shows up a lot in the pages of Scripture. Uh, for starters, it's kind of how they, how do you measure a generation? And 40 years is typically what they think of for a generation. You look at Jacob and Esau, these uh, twin sons of uh, Isaac, grandsons of Abraham. Bible tells us they're 40 years old when they marry their wives. Uh, when you, you think about Moses on top of Mount Sinai, he's up on top getting the commandments for 40 days. King David, King Solomon, they sit on the throne of Israel for 40 years. The great flood in Noah's day, 40 days and 40 nights. The time between Jesus' resurrection and ascension is 40 days. So we, we see this number 40 in all sorts of places. Many of the places we see the number 40 showing up, it shows up when people are going through the desert. Think about Moses. Uh, when he's 40 years old, he kills an Egyptian soldier, and then he flees into the desert of Midian. And guess how long he stays in the desert of Midian? 40 years. Hey, you guys are a real smart congregation. Uh, when the wicked queen Jezebel wants to kill God's prophet Elijah, he runs away from her. He runs into the desert, and he's there for 40 days. Jesus begins his public ministry, 40 days fasting in the desert. 
And we see this time and again in all sorts of ways. And I think sometimes people wonder, why does my faith seem so dry? Why does it seem like I'm going through these hard times, these dry times, I'm, I'm spending so much time in the desert? And part of what I want to remind you of, it's not necessarily, it doesn't feel like good news, but when you say yes to living a life of faith, what you are saying yes to is you're gonna be logging some time in the desert. From a spiritual standpoint, I guess we could say life begins at 40. Because what God does in those 40 years or 40 days when you are in the desert, what God does in our life, it's real important stuff. Now, if I had to choose 40 years or 40 days, I'm going to choose 40 days. But the honest truth is I don't even want to spend 40 days in the desert. I don't think most people do. We all know, we all understand life is bleak in the desert. Take a look. Sandstorms like these appear without warning and reduce visibility for days over areas the size of Britain. Dromedaries, single humped camels, take these storms in their stride. The heavy sand rises only a few meters above the ground but the dust can be blown 5,000 meters up into the sky. The ferocious wind, armed with grains of sand, is the agent that shapes all deserts. Reptiles have armored scaly skins that protect them from the stinging grains. For insects, the bombardment can be very severe indeed. The only escape is below the surface. You're welcome for your nightmares for tonight. The only escape is below the surface. That's, those are the words, this is the message to insects and reptiles in a physical, geographical, geological desert. I wonder if it's also the message for human beings who are trying to survive in a spiritual desert. The only escape is below the surface. It's a good message for those of us living in this part of the world, a part of the world where it's pretty easy to become convinced the very best kind of life comes when we make sure everything looks good on the outside, everything looks good and clean on the surface. And, and that's the kind of religious world that Jesus enters when he's doing his ministry. There were all kinds of these religious rituals around cleaning the outside of the body or cleaning the outside of kitchen instruments and utensils so that you don't become impure. So making sure the, the surface is clean. 
Turns out Jesus and his disciples were not a tidy bunch, and they often were accused of not being clean enough and not following these ceremonial purification rituals. In Mark chapter 7, they come to Jesus and his disciples one time, and they say, why, why don't you wash your hands? You know, What's up with that? And why don't you do whatever you can to make sure you don't eat or drink something that causes you to be impure? Let's read together how Jesus responds. Mark chapter 7, verse 15, it's on the screen, read it with me. It's not what goes into your body that defiles you. You are defiled by what comes from your heart. And then Jesus, just a couple of verses later, will say this. For from within, out of a person's heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these vile things come from within. They are what defile you. Jesus is really clear. It's it's not the outside that matters, it's the inside. It's not the surface, it's what's below the surface. Richard Attenborough narrating that documentary, Planet Earth, says if you're trying to survive in the desert, the only escape is below the surface. Jesus says when you are in a dry season, when you're in a spiritual desert, the only escape is below the surface. This is when you have to take a close and careful examination of the condition of your heart. I I like the way it gets talked about it in recovery movement. You take a searching and fearless moral inventory of your life. We have to figure out what's going on in my heart. What's this all about? You take a look at the people of Israel wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, in the desert for 40 years. They spend a lot of time crying out to God and complaining. We're in the desert, it's hot here, we're thirsty and there's nothing to drink. Come on God, you gotta do something. And time and again we see God responding and God provides water often in miraculous kinds of ways. In the book of Deuteronomy, at the end of those 40 years, so think about Moses, 40 years in the desert of Midian, and then says, let's, God says to him, let's take 40 more years through uh, the desert of Sinai. So really for Moses, it's at the end of 80 years in the desert that he says this to the people of Israel, starting in verse 15 of Deuteronomy 8. Do not forget that he, God, led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its poisonous snakes and scorpions, where it was so hot and dry. He gave you water from the rock. He fed you with manna in the wilderness of food unknown to your ancestors. He did this to humble you and test you for your own good. He did all this so you would never say to yourself, I have achieved this wealth with my own strength and energy. This is one of the primary lessons of the desert. The desert teaches us we are not God. In the desert, we learn how desperately we are in need of God. The desert helps us get to a place where we can cry out like the writer of Psalm 42, I thirst for God. Have you ever tried to teach a child to ride a bicycle? Oftentimes they're on training wheels and then they want to be done with the training wheel and so get rid of the training wheels and off we go. Well, not so fast, right? Mom or dad or grandparent or neighbor, you're, you're helping the child by holding onto the bike for a little while, helping them balance and eventually you will let go and off they go on their own and inevitably they will fall down 
and cry and look at you and say, why did you let go of the bike? It's all part of the process. And, and it's a similar thing to a life of faith. Early on, when we say yes to Jesus, when, when we say yes to living a life of faith, early on, God is kind of kind to us and like everything works. Prayer works. I pray and it's like God hears my prayer. God answers my prayer. This is great. I love being a person of faith. Or I read the Bible and it's like God's speaking to me out of the pages of this ancient document or I show up to worship and I'm moved in my spirit and maybe even sometimes the preacher boy says something that makes sense but eventually that goes away. That stops and there's a reason for this. That, that's like spirituality with training wheels and eventually God says we got to get rid of the training wheels. And, and you might find yourself wondering, well, why would God do that? Why would God not want prayer to work and scripture to work and worship to work? Same reason that God has the people of Israel go through the wilderness for 40 years. So that they would learn they are not capable on their own strength. They can't do it on their own strength, on their own energy. They are not God. And neither are you, and neither am I. There's so much in this life that we cannot do apart from God's intervention. And the desert helps us become more and more aware of that all the time. The desert helps us get to a place where we understand God is our only hope for life. Uh, my family, uh, this week, we've experienced something that many of you have experienced at least once, sometimes more than once. Our first uh, child graduated from high school this week. When we moved to Ankeny, Dalton was seven years old. We had five kids, seven and under. <laughs> and you all would say to us, oh, Scott, you got to cherish these moments. They're going to go by so fast. And before you know it, Dalton's going to be graduating. And so soak it up. Don't, don't miss. Don't take advantage of all of these opportunities. And i got to be honest with you, confession time. Most of the time after those conversations, I would turn my head and roll my eyes and say, are you kidding me? I want time to go as fast as possible. We've got five kids, seven and under. Huh. This is the line that uh, Jim Gaffigan says. Somebody asks you what it's like to have four kids, I think is what he says. Uh, imagine you have three kids and uh, you're drowning and somebody hands you another baby. That's kind of what it's like. <laughs> anyway. So Dalton graduated and, and you all were right. You know, time flew by, and I've been a little surprised at how emotionally disruptive it's been for me this year, and I'll just be driving down the street, and all of a sudden, a thought of Dalton will pop into my head, and I'll just start crying, like, that's ridiculous. Anyway, it <laughs> caused me to think of this hypothetical exercise that we're going to do today. I think we may have done this before, five years ago, seven years ago, I don't know, time flies when you're having fun. Um, psychologist named Jonathan Haidt. Ask people to consider doing this hypothetical exercise. Imagine that you have a child and you're given a script of how their life will go. You're also given a magic eraser. And they say, you've got five minutes, you can read through this list of everything that's going to happen in your child's life, and you, in five minutes you can erase the parts that you want to erase. Five minutes to do that. So you start reading through the script. You read your child will have a learning disability in grade school. Reading which comes easily for some kids will be laborious for yours. In high school, your child will make a great circle of friends and then one of them will die of cancer. After high school, this child will actually get into the college that they want to attend. While they are in college, they will be in a car crash and they will lose a leg and go through a difficult depression. 
A few years later, your child will get a great job and lose that job in an economic downturn. Your child will get married, but then go through the grief of separation, and on and on and on it goes with situation scenarios like that. You've got the script. You've got the magic eraser. You have five minutes. What would you erase? What would you erase? And, and I think kind of the instinctual response for most of us is, I want to erase anything that causes pain in my child's life. But of course, that raises an important question, doesn't it? If we could do that, if we could get rid of the setbacks, the hardship, the difficulty, all the pain and suffering, would that actually be what is best for our child? Would that help them become an adult who is strong and caring and kind and generous and loving? Or is it possible that part of what we need as human beings in order to develop and grow and to reach the potential, the God-given potential that we have, part of what we need, hardship, trial, setbacks, the desert. This is, I'm convinced of this. One of the things that the desert teaches us is this is the truth. We, we need these kinds of hard realities. It's what forms us. It's what shapes us. And ultimately, the desert is all about God's love. Ultimately, the desert is all about God's love. Think about it. In your life, when things are going great, when you're at the top, when you're achieving everything that you want to achieve, when and how you want to achieve it, you come to worship and you're reminded by the preacher or somebody else that there's a God who loves you, that's good, that's, that's important. But when you're in the desert, when you're at the bottom, when things are not going the way that you want them to be going, when it seems like doubt and temptation is winning, and then you come to worship and you hear the still small voice of God whisper to the deepest places of your spirit, I love you still. I could not love you more than I love you in this moment. You are the object of my undying affection. When God whispers love to someone who believes they are unlovable, that's the way God gives life-giving water to a person who is dying of thirst in the desert. And that church is grace. That's what grace is. When someone who believes they are unlovable receives, knows God's love for them, that's grace. And that gets us to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, our Bible reading for today, Jesus is at something called the Festival of Shelters. And God has seven different feasts or festivals that he gives to the people of Israel to celebrate for, for all kinds of reasons. The Festival of Shelters was a way of remembering the 40 years in the desert when their ancestors had to live in these tents, these booths, these temporary makeshift shelters in the desert, in the wilderness. And so for the seven days of this festival and when the temple was still around in Jerusalem, almost always thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Jewish people from all over the world would gather in Jerusalem for the festival of shelters. And it, there were a couple of different things going on. I, I don't know if you know this or not. In a couple of weeks, we're hosting here at Hope Ankeny an interfaith panel. And I'll be on the panel representing what faith? 
Christianity, yes. There will also be other, uh, uh, someone representing the Jewish community, someone representing the Islamic community from central Iowa, and we'll just be answering some questions about, about our faith. Part of the reason we're doing this, a couple of years ago, the library here in Ankeny did the same thing and asked me to be on the panel, and some of you were there, and it was a, a, an interesting night, a good experience for you, so we just thought, let's, let's do it again. So on that night, one of the questions they asked, which at the time I thought was, I don't know, kind of a softball question. It was, what's the favorite or what's the most important holiday in your faith? And I was like, come on, what? what's the, can we talk about something deeper than holiday? Anyway, the rabbi's answer was festival of shelters. And so I'm sitting next to the rabbi as he's talking about what happens in the festival of shelters. It happens at the end of the final harvest of the season. Uh, September is typically when it happens. And so it's this great celebration, thanking God in gratitude for the harvest that God has brought about that they could not do on their own strength and their own energy. But it also is at the end of the dry season. And so a big part of the Festival of Shelters is praying for God to give water so that the dry season would end, so that it would rain, so that that would ensure next season's harvest. And as the week progressed, the people would process back and forth every day to the temple and back to their shelters, and they would sing the psalms, and they would praise God, and it was just this wonderful celebratory thing. But as the week progressed, it became a little more desperation. And on the last day of the festival, the rabbi said, the climax of the festival, it was this massive rain dance where in desperation, the people are crying out to God, please God, send us rain so we don't die. Please, God, send us rain so that we can live. And it's in the context of all of that that Jesus shows up in our Bible reading for today. And part of what I find interesting, at the beginning of John chapter 7, they're like, let's go to Jerusalem. It's time for the festival of shelters. And Jesus says, I don't think it's probably a good idea for me to go. There are people there who don't like me. People who are there who want my ministry to end. And if I show up, they might do harm to me. They might kill me. But about halfway through the story... Jesus sneaks down to Jerusalem and then he starts speaking to these crowds of thousands of people. Here's part of what he says, verse 37. On the last day, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood and shouted to the crowds. Crowds of thousands of people desperately singing and crying out. How loud do you think Jesus was when he shouts this? Pretty loud. Anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Keep it in the context of everything we've been talking about today. Psalm 42, I thirst for God. People of Israel in the desert, Lord, we're thirsty. God, you have to do something or we're going to die. Same thing happening all week long in John 7 in the Festival of Shelters. God needs to give us something to drink. And Jesus says, if you're looking for God to give you something to drink, if you are thirsty, if you're looking for God, come to me. It's a not so subtle way of Jesus saying, I am God. I am God. And you have to understand that John makes it clear, very divisive. Some people are intrigued by what Jesus has said. Other people are deeply offended. And then Jesus ups the ante in the next verse. Verse 38, he says, anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. Drink from Jesus and rivers of living water will flow from your heart. It's not what's on the outside, it's what's on the inside. It's not the surface, it's what's below the surface. When you're in the desert, when you're in a dry and weary and parched land, 
When the only escape is below the surface, Jesus says, come to me and drink this living water. And John goes on to say, when Jesus is talking about living water, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. When you're in a dry season, when you're in the desert, come to Jesus and say, fill me with the Holy Spirit. Fill me with the Holy Spirit so that out of my heart, I will be changed from the inside out. And out of my heart, fruit will be produced that I can't produce on my own, but that God can produce. And we'll talk about that next week. But here's where I want us to end this week. The Boundary Waters. It was in the 1990s, I was a youth pastor. (laughs) And they paid me to take high school students to northern Minnesota to spend a week in the Boundary Waters. Now think about this. There are people who think a good idea of a relaxing vacation is to carry a canoe on your back through muddy, mosquito-infested trails in a forest where you're probably going to get lost and die, but if you don't, at least you can sleep in the tent on, a, on the ground and hang your gear in the tree so that the bears don't eat you. Who, sign me up! Here's what I remember from my week in the Boundary Waters. The shower at the end of the week. Back in civilization, indoors, modern plumbing. And as the water is pouring over me, washing away a week's worth of dirt and sweat and stench and who knows what else. You know, sometimes when you're in the wilderness and you want to leave, sometimes when you're in the desert and you want to leave, what you really need is a good washing. The heavens had suddenly opened outside. It was the kind of rain that gushes over the top of gutters, so much in a hurry to hit the earth it has no time to flow down the spout. We all stood there in the shelter of the building. We waited. Some patiently. Others irritated because nature interfered with their hurried day. Then a little voice broke the hypnotic trance we were all caught in. Mum, let's run for the rain. Let's run through the rain. What? Let's run through the rain. No, honey, we'll wait until it slows down. Now stop it. People are starting to stare. But, Mum... We'll get soaked if we do. No, we won't, Mum. That's not what you said this morning. This morning? When did I say we could run through the rain and not get wet? Don't you remember? When you were talking to Daddy about his cancer, you said, if we can get through this, we can get through anything. in the next few minutes. Mum paused and thought for a moment about what she would say. Now some would laugh it off and scold her for being silly. Some might even ignore what was said. But this was a moment of affirmation in a young child's life. 
a time when innocent trust can be nurtured so that it will bloom into faith. Let's run through the rain. And if we get wet, well, maybe you just needed washing. staring and smiling as they ran off getting soaked. They were followed by a few who screamed and laughed like children all the way to their cars. And yes, I did. I ran and got wet. <laughs> I needed washing. If you can get through the desert, you can get through anything. And you can get through the desert, but not on your own strength. Not without God's help. <laughs>